Uh, my name is Pete Betke. Um, I'm the director of the F.A. Hayek program here at George Mason University. Um, today we're really thrilled. We have uh, Deirdre McCloskey here in conversation with my good colleague uh, Don Boudreau. Uh, Deirdre um, has just come out with the third volume of her trilogy um, and uh, the bourgeois equality, uh, which builds on the bourgeois virtues and the bourgeois dignity. Um, Don will talk about uh, this in his introduction, but uh, I want to personally congratulate Deirdre on this collection. I think it's the most ambitious uh, work in economics done uh, during my career, at least in economics, and uh, just a, an amazing achievement uh, for what you've done and, and uh, generate the conversation in economics. And hopefully we'll have a great conversation today. And Don, let's turn it over to you. Thanks, Pete. When uh, Claire Morgan asked me if I would uh, lead, conduct the conversation with Deirdre, I immediately jumped at the, at the opportunity. Uh, not only is it an honor, uh, but uh, there are few books that one reads in a scholarly life that fundamentally change or that deeply change the way you look at the world. And these books have done that for me. Um, and so I'm, I'm honored to be here with, with Deirdre. Deirdre McCloskey is taught at the University of Illinois, Chicago from 2000 to 2015. She's now emerita. I am. Um, I, I would list all the departments in which she taught, but that would take us through the whole hour. Uh, one of them was economics. Uh, before that, Deirdre taught at the University of Iowa uh, and also at the University of Chicago. She's been a longtime friend of the economics department here at George Mason and of the Mercatus Center. I believe you have your scholarly articles number about four, 400. I don't dare put a number on the on the number of other popular blog posts and and and, and uh, magazine articles that uh, you've written. This I also believe is your seventeenth yeah. uh, authored authored book. Um, uh, as Pete noticed, the, noted, it's the final book in a remarkable trilogy, which will uh, consume the bulk of our time uh, today. Uh, but before we get to the actual conversation, let me quote uh, from Deirdre's website, which I encourage you to visit, by the way. It's a great website. It has access to most of Deirdre's works. On her website, uh, she protests that she is not a conservative economist. Um, so here is what she is, uh, if you don't mind me putting your words in your mouth. Uh, yeah, in Deirdre's words, she is, quote, a literary quantitative, postmodern, free market, progressive Episcopalian, Midwestern woman from Boston who was once a man. <laughs> Not conservative. I am Christian. I am a Christian libertarian. And indeed, end quote, indeed, she is. Uh, were I to list all of Deirdre's achievements, uh, I would, again, this would be a, a monologue by Don and not a conversation with Deirdre. So let's, let's, get, let's get to it. So congratulations on you, the publication of the third volume. Um, I remember being in the, the Mercatus-sponsored uh, uh, transcript uh, right. seminar, uh, and uh, so that's when I, I, I read it. I haven't yet, I just got my, I haven't yet gotten through the entire. It's changed a lot. Uh, okay, all right. well, I, I remember the, tran <laughs> the, the transcript. What, tell us, for those who haven't read it, what are bourgeois virtues, and where did this trilogy come from? What's the germ? Of this trilogy. Well, the the the, in, the the germ was the the notion of the virtues by social class, 
the aristocracy, the peasantry, and then I thought, gee, the bourgeois virtues. But all, all they are are the virtues as understood in the West and the East and the South and the North of human society in a commercial context. So courage would be entrepreneurship. Um, love would be uh, uh, um, uh, solidarity or, or personal consideration in a, in a business, for example. So it, it, there, there isn't anything specifically bourgeois about the virtues. I'm simply taking the tradition of virtue ethics, so-called, which was the long time way that people in the West talked about being good and saying, well, you can be good and be in an economy too. Now that comes as news to a lot of intellectuals. Um, and uh, that's why I wrote the books, is to, is, is to bring the good news to our wonderful friends on the left and some on the right who regard a uh, market society um, as a, uh, well, as an abomination, as, as corrupting. Let, 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 let me be uh, presumptuous and summarize real quickly what I take to be the, the main theme of these three volumes. He knows what I do better than I do, so I'm looking forward to this. No, feel, feel free to correct <laughs> I won't have to. No, this is a very short summary of, of, of complex, complex ideas. Um, economists, since, certainly since the time of Adam Smith, uh, have asked what causes material progress, what causes, yes, what causes growth. The, right? the nature uh, and causes of the, of the wealth, wealth of nations. nations. There's certainly no question that there's been a major increase in the rate of material progress since the time of Adam Smith. A factor of 30. A factor of 30. You call it the great enrichment. You call I it do. One of, rightly, I believe, call it one of the greatest events in human history, probably right after the invention of agriculture. Yep. Um, and you found or find every other explanation that economists have offered for the great enrichment to be wanting. Yeah. And your explanation for the great enrichment yeah. is that ideas change. Yes. And in particularly, uh, specifically, ideas change in such a way that practitioners of bourgeois virtues, people who act yeah. as bourgeois, the merchants, merchants, innovators, whatever. they, for the first time in history, starting about 200, 250 years ago in the northwest part of Europe, uh, became dignified in the eyes That's of, the of most people. Not everyone, but in the eyes of most people. That unleashed That's right. this creative energy. So that's the key. It's not so much that psychology changed. That's what Max, uh, Max Weber said, claimed 100 years ago. And I don't think that's very plausible. It's not that people got, I don't know, better. It's that the surrounding society changed its valuation of what they did. So the word innovation, for example, was a scare word until the 19th century. To innovate was to change religious beliefs or to disturb the social hierarchy. We don't, huh, we don't want any of that innovation. So that's the main thing that changed. In fact, I, in the last month or so, I've 
decided that I, this last volume should have been entitled not, I should add one more word. It's got a long title anyway. It's called Bourgeois Equality. How, now here's how I should have said it, and this will shock you, how liberal ideas, not capital or institutions, enrich the world. Because it's the basic liberal idea, not in the modern American sense, but in its older sense, that, that people are equal before the law and equal in social standing. It's that equality that inspired people. And I get more and more um, evidence of this every day. I'm, I'm re reading now an extremely good biography of the great Norwegian national hero, Fridtjof Nansen, after whom I'm named. And all through it, you're seeing these poor Swedes and Norwegians inventing stuff in the 19th century. You know, the, the, the Primus stove, for example, which made Arctic exploration so much easier because they're being allowed to. Matt Ridley has a nice review of Wonderful bourgeois, review. bourgeois equality, but he... La he last Sunday in the, in the, in the London, London Times. Yeah. Uh, but he pushes back a little bit. Yeah, he, he does. He, he, he wonders, and I wonder how you'd respond to this question. He asks, how do you know uh, the causal direction? It, it, it is true, we, you, you document, that yeah. the change in rhetoric occurred starting about 200, 250 years ago. Uh, bourgeois activities came to be more respected and spoken of with, well, with greater dignity. Matt wonders, was that the cause? Or was, that, was that an effect of well, some it's, other change? It's, 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 it's clear that there's a kind of backwash. I mean, that the idea of equality, not what I call French equality, which was the idea that equality of result, equality of income, which is what we usually think of, but what, what I call Scottish equality, namely equality of human dignity socially and before the law. Um, those, uh, those, of course, were raised in prestige by the success of this formula. You see it in uh, Scotland itself, for example, and in England and Holland to begin with. It all begins in, in Holland uh, and then the United States and Australia and so forth. And, and, and then in Scandinavia and elsewhere, and you see this uh, great success, and of course that then increases the prestige of um, market-tested uh, betterment, as I call it. But I would say to Ridley that you have to look at the timing and the comparisons, but let's look at the timing. The increase in the status of economic behavior and bourgeois activity and innovation happens before any substantial economic success. Well before. It's around 1700. Well, actually, as I said, it starts in Holland. So 100 years before, around 1600, you have this uh, flowering of Dutch commercial society. Then about 100 years later, the English adopt a Dutch king a Dutch central bank, a Dutch exchange, a Dutch, uh, unfortunately, a Dutch national debt. I, I'm surprised they didn't adopt the Dutch language 
it became so very Dutch by 1700. And that's way before there was any substantial payoff. So, so, so the real payoff comes not so much in the classic industrial revolution of the late 18th century, but in, as you said, what I call the great enrichment of the 19th and 20th century, when innovation, betterment, just goes completely wacko. And as, uh, as Ridley himself says, ideas start having sex. And then the baby ideas and the grandbaby ideas have sex, and, and you get all this amazing uh, innovation of mechanical inventions, which we can see all around us, but also certain organizational and social inventions. Do, do you have any idea why the ideas change? Yes, and that's what I devote much of this third volume to. Because as you said, I had, I, I, I'd shown to my satisfaction in the second volume that the standard economic arguments, coal is a big favorite. Um, Which uh, Matt Ridley favors. He does, and he's wrong. Uh, <laughs> you know, he's, he's very nice and very smart, but even very smart people are sometimes wrong. And, um, uh, or foreign trade, or the slave trade, or exploitation of the poor, or something like that. All those don't work. They, they don't have enough oomph from an economic point of view. If you, if you think carefully of the economics involved, they're just not big enough to explain a factor of 30, which is what we're trying to explain. And then, historically speaking, they don't make any sense because often, well, the, the Chinese were exploiting coal for um, 3,000 years uh, without an industrial revolution. But in, in the third volume, I say, okay, why, why did, why did this, this liberal idea become so powerful? all of a sudden, and it was all of a sudden. And I have, I'm sorry to say, I haven't got any snappy answer. Here's the, here's the, here's the simple answer. It is that it was accidents. It was accidents of the politics and sociology of, of Europe, starting in, uh, in uh, 1517, that famous year, up to, uh, up to uh, 1789. In that period, Hierarchy began to break down. Now, hierarchy is what runs an agricultural civilization. Not hunter-gatherers, but agriculturalists have these horrible hierarchies. You know, I'm the lord of the manor, and too bad for you. You've got to give me rents and taxes. And that started to break down. And ordinary people were made bold. Clear example of this, rather late in the process, are English Quakers, in which even women were allowed to speak at at the meeting, in which there weren't, to, to the, the, in which there was no hierarchy at all. There was no priest. There, there, there was no person even appointed by the congregation. And I say that it's not so much the the doctrine of salvation, as again, Max Weber said that changed, but church governance that made people bold. And I, and I give some evidence for this. There's, so there, there are accidental, and here, here's why I say it's, a, what's the point of calling it accidental? I don't want people to believe that there's something peculiarly and deeply European about all this. It could have happened in China 
with sufficient time, it could have happened in um, Mayan Guatemala. <laughs> it could have happened in lots of places, maybe a little later. Uh, why it didn't happen in China earlier is a puzzle. Well, that is this great enrichment. But it, it's, it's not some Europeanness, as, you know, as is rather obvious, from the successes of liberal economic policies with constraints in China and India right now. I think without those two recent examples, it would have been much harder to make this argument. We were talking just before we started filming about, about a book that you and I, and most, econ most good economists love, Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the blessed Adam, Adam the Smith. The blessed Adam Smith. Right. And, and uh, Adam Smith, of course, uh, uh, famously, at least among people who know his work, uh, didn't say very many favorable things about business people. No, he didn't. At least on the surface, that's a little bit in tension with your yeah. thesis. Yeah, I, but, but he, for, for one thing, he didn't think much of entrepreneurship. Um, uh, 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 Pete here has spoken of, of Smith and Schumpeter and stupidity as the three forces that we need to be concerned with. And Smith is about efficiency. And uh, Schumpeter is about innovation, about the real cause of modern economic growth. And stupidity, well, that's about the government for the most part. Um, and so Smith is not a, a he will hear, express it this way. Smith didn't know what his radically egalitarian ideas about equality before the law and social equality was going to do. He didn't quite realize that he was creating a, a document that uh, would uh, sustain this move of egalitarianism. Um, so, you know, he was one of the he was a good, uh, you know, he's Adam Smith, he's a gr great economist, but no one saw it coming. Let, let me try this on yeah. for the Smith thing. So when Smith does talk about business people, it's almost always in the context of business people, to put it in modern terms, lobbying the state for yes. special privileges. That's what he uh, said. He said, yeah. the, uh, he, uh, people think it's Napoleon who coined the phrase, but it's, it's Adam Smith who, said, who spoke of Britain as a nation of shopkeepers. Mm -hmm. And he said, These, this commercial system, as he called it, which we still have, namely um, mercantilism and protectionism and, and so on, licensing of occupations and all the horrible um, fe uh, features that have hung over from the Middle Ages, he said, this is a system not appropriate to a nation of shopkeepers, but appropriate to a nation whose government is influenced by shopkeepers. And that's exactly right, and it's still true. One of the remarkable things about the, you, you do it in all, certainly the last two volumes, you just give these example after example <laughs> of the, just how much better materially. Oh, it's astonishing. It, it, it's, why is it that most people uh, don't recognize it? Why is it that most people somehow think it's not as big a deal as you believe it to be? Or that it's doomed? Most people like pessimism. Mm -hmm. 
we were talking about it at lunch. Why do people like to say the sky is falling? They always do. Um, Bob Gordon, a old friend of mine, has just written a book, The Sky is Falling, The Sky is Falling. Um, well, Bob, maybe. I don't think so. It hasn't fallen yet. I'm looking around. I don't see pieces of it. And so there's a deep, I mean, p people feel that they're sophisticated if, they, if, they're, if they're pessimists. And, and it's very easy to forget or to romanticize one's youth. My, my mother's 93 and is a very um, uh, intelligent and uh, sharp person in every way. And I'm always saying to her, well, Mom, she says, oh, things are terrible, things are terrible. And I say, but they were worse than you were when you were a kid. She was born in 1922. She said, oh, no, we were happy then. Well, her, her mother would put in the Great Depression would put pieces of cardboard in her shoes so they wouldn't, so the holes wouldn't leak. I mean, uh, you yourself, Don, have done excellent service in showing how much cheaper so many things are. A refrigerator, a color TV, um, psychotropic drugs, all kinds of things, not not psych, well, yeah, not those kind of drugs, but things like like, like lithium and so forth, which um, which the richest people in the world didn't have to fight their mental illness in 1950. We now have, but I don't know how to get people out of this dismal mood. Well, so in addition to, nor do I. I'm pessimistic about that. <laughs> in, in in addition to the the interminable pessimism, uh, today, I mean, not, not today, today, but in the past several years, yeah. has seen a return of uh, inequality as a yeah, dominating yeah, yeah. Uh, feature. I mean, Thomas Piketty's book of, yeah. of 2014, which you uh, reviewed brilliantly, and in her also favorable review in the Financial Times yeah. of your book, Diane, Diane Coyle. Yeah, she talks about it, too. She, she talks about it, and she wonders if you're a bit too complacent oh, yeah, about the complacent future because of the, because the current concern about inequality. Well, the, 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 you know, we, we thought for a while that we'd taken socialism mm -hmm. out, to the, um, uh, out to the crossroads by the, by the light of the full moon and pounded a wooden stake through its heart, and it was dead. But socialism, since its invention in the 19th century, one of the great intellectual inventions of the 19th century, along with nationalism, and if you like those two, try national socialism, um, is perennially popular. I, I think it is, uh, Bob Higgs, who is here, has pointed out, the size of government has just kept going up. And so we keep thinking that we will help the poor instead of letting the poor help themselves. So we, 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 um, so I, I, I don't know. I, I think people like equality and socialism and so on because they grow up in families and families are socialist um, enterprises. Mom is the central planner and so forth. But in fact, think of it. From an ethical point of view, equality is not the problem. There, there, there's a line in one of, a couple of lines in one of Shakespeare's sonnets, I can't um, uh, quote it, I'm afraid, where he, he points this out. He says, look, <laughs> I would like to have this man's 
handsomeness and this man's intelligence and this man's strength. And it's, it's, a, it's a hopeless project for us to be equal, but it's not a hopeless project for us to be rich. To enrich the poor should be our, our, our purpose. And that, I think, is an honorable and liberal and sensible and achievable purpose uh, for, well, public policy, if you want to talk about it that way. So if, if not equality. If this change in rhetoric and change in the way people view those who pursue bourgeois pursuits, yep. uh, if that was sufficient to bring about this enormous and wonderful great enrichment, uh, I, I presume it's the case that if this rhetoric moves back in the other direction, yep. then we can be doomed. Yes, and I think you see this in the, in the um, sluggishness of the economy of uh, um, Europe. Uh, the Treaty of Rome was a wonderful document and broke down trade barriers among European nations, all to the good. And then in Brussels, they thought, well, you know, we, we have to go, we, 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 and here again, this, this, this kind of idea of equality, we've got to eat, we've got to, uh, what, what's the phrase? We, we've got to make the playing field. Level the playing field. Yeah, we've got to level the playing field. And so, look, Cadbury, Cadbury's milk chocolate is not really chocolate, said the bureaucrats in Brussels. It hasn't got enough uh, cocoa in it. So we're going to declare Cadbury's chocolate not chocolate. And you can imagine how this played in Britain. Or we're going to take non-pasteurized Italian cheese and we're going to outlaw it. Because after all, the other stuff's pasteurized. Our good Danish cheese is pasteurized. What's wrong with these Italians? And it just means it's a, it, it's a, I haven't ever thought of this before, it's this equality idea that the purpose of a modern society is to make everyone equal. And it's a crazy program um, and, and a pointless one if we achieve what John Rawls uh, argued was the raising of the bottom. That's what we should be doing, the improvement of the, of the worst off. And that's not be by done, but done by whining about how many yachts Lillian Betancourt, the, the heir to the L'Oreal fortune has. Which, 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 that's what uh, Thomas oh, Piketty Oh, Piketty just him. hates Lillian Betancourt. And I, I agree that she's a jerk. <laughs> um, she, uh, here, here, she, here's an interesting fact about her. If she's still alive, I don't know if she is. But her charitable foundation has invested in it <laughs> one half of 1% of her wealth. One half of 1%. Compare Andrew Carnegie. 100 <laughs> percent. Well, yachts are expensive. Yeah, yachts are expensive, and so she has a bunch of yachts. But that doesn't make people poor. What makes people poor is a lack of equality. Equality of before the law, take, take the drug laws, for example, which we're now, you know, I've known this for many years, most of the people here have, but suddenly the American public is realizing 
that the drug laws are not equally enforced. <laughs> I'm shocked. Um, and, and equality of social um, uh, standing, so we respect each other. That's what makes for a vital entrepreneurial society. I don't want to slip myself into suffering the pessimism that I that you and so you fight against and I, that I try to fight against. But I have to say the rhetoric of the past few years. Oh, it's been terrible. The, the intellectual rhetoric, the, the Thomas Piketty stuff. Yeah. Uh, certainly the political rhetoric now. Yeah, it's terrible. Uh, it, 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 it's as bad as it's worse than it's been at any point in my lifetime. I know. Uh, is it possible that we're we're seeing the beginning of a return to the ages of hierarchy? Here's where it might not. Here's where it might... Uh, Are you still optimistic? I'm still optimistic. I'm just an optimist. You can't change gender without being an optimist. <laughs> but but, but I, I, think, I think the demonstration effect is very powerful. Um, I think India embarked on liberalization of what, what, the, what the Indians called the license raj, of uh, per capita income growing at 1% a year per, uh, as opposed to 5 to 7% per year per capita now in 1991 because they saw the Chinese doing it. And uh, so what we used to call the red Chinese in 1978 saw Hong Kong doing it. And, and so the, it, roughly I think the world will become more liberal, in my sense, in the next um, 50 years. And I expect that res to result in a gigantic worldwide enrichment. For example, in Sub-Saharan Africa in particular, I predict a great future for it. Uh, Sub-Saharan Africa has more genetic variability than any other part of Homo, homo sapiens. And so when they stop uh, misgoverning themselves, so unlike we Europeans who, who, who you know, only had a First World War and a Second World War and a Holocaust and, and communism and fascism, we were so <coughs> clever by comparison with these stupid sub Now, this is all ironic. But, the, but, the, but when the sub-Saharan Africans have equality before the law and dignity, and when they stop having large government, control their large governments, their large um, bands of robbers, uh, they will grow. And because of the genetic variability, the greatest mathematicians, musicians, intellectuals, artists, scientists will all have black faces, which I think will be a wonderful irony on um, the racism of Europeans and East Asians. Let's step back. And, <laughs> I, I, I hope you're right. And I'm, I, 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 I know I'm I don't, right. I don't disagree. Um, let's step back from the books for a moment. So uh, you were trained as an economist in the 1960s. I was. Yeah, if you call going to Harvard being trained as an economist. <laughs> you, you've, you've done okay for yourself. So. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, uh, what is your assessment of the state of the economics profession today? Well, compared to when you began? Well, I, I don't think it's improved all that much, and, and it's, in some ways it's worse. I mean, economists, very surprisingly, in the last 50 years, and I've been in the profession about 50 years, have become more arrogant 
which is almost unbelievable considering how arrogant they were in the 1960s. Um, arrogant in what way? Well, arrogant in lots of ways, thinking that they have the solution, um, that, uh, that sociologists and English professors are stupid, um, that uh, they're just the cat's meow in every way, intellectually and, and politically. Um, and and there's, no, there's no basis for it. I, I think one of the great problems in modern economics is the lack of understanding, unlike uh, Hayek and Keynes and lots of other earlier economists, that to be a good economist, you need to have a full culture. You've got to be a humanist as well as a quantifier. You've got to have both. Uh, so I advocate with, uh, my, with my, my, my friend Bart, Bart, Bart Wilson, who coined the term, humanomics. Economics that doesn't lose the math if you need it, and, and we often do, um, that thinks qu quantitatively when that's appropriate, but then thinks intelligently about categories, and that's what the humanities do. That's what the humanities are, is the study of categories. In theology, does God exist is the simple one, exist, not exist. In, in philosophy, what is the nat what is the category? Knowledge. What is it? Justified true belief? Is that enough? That's a categorical inquiry. And most of abstract mathematics, not applied mathematics, but, but existence theorems and so on, is categorical talk. What categories do these things fall into? And then once you've got the categories, then you, you can measure. So I think that a, a more civilized economics, a, an economics that takes seriously uh, philosophy and literature um, is, the, uh, is the way to the future. But to answer your question straightforwardly, economists are rushing in the other direction. And like the per 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 proverbial lemmings are aiming for the cliff I remember, this is on the same topic really, I remember when I, I first met you in uh, actually April of 1986, so wow. 30 years ago. Yeah. I was 12 <laughs> at the time. Well, I was younger. <laughs> I'm, uh, I, I wish, I, I was, in, I was in, uh, George Selgin and I, uh, late John Blundell, Jack yeah. High, Don Lavoie. Uh, John was a we sweet. We had dinner here in Fairfax, and I was struck by something you said that day. I'd never heard this from an economist who had any... <laughs> favorable connection with George Mason, uh, that Karl Marx had a lot to teach us. Sure he and, did. Yeah. And, so, and just so briefly, what, well, Car I, what is it that Karl Marx here, has to teach us? Here, here's, well, my, my joke is that Karl Marx, I, I say to my um, libertarian friends, I say, um, Karl Marx was the greatest social scientist of the 19th century without compare. And they all get mad at me. <laughs> and then I turn to my my, my left-wing friends, that I was once a Marxist myself, and I say, and he was wrong about almost everything. And so they get mad, That's which, which is why I don't have any friends. <laughs> you do here. <laughs> Thank you. But what Marx, um, I, I suppose you could say that the, the questions Marx asked, Marx asked are the important ones. Is there a pattern to history? Um, 
are there stages of history? Actually, it was Adam Smith was one of the early stage theorists, but Marx, of course, took it much further. Um, is our ideas independent of material conditions, or is the superstructure a mere consequence of the of the of the material base? And he asked all these questions, and he got all the answers wrong. But he asked the questions in a serious way. So I, I really had, had, had admire Marx in a lot of ways. Now I admire, I've come to admire um, other people too. But as a kid, I was a Marxist because I was a socialist. I was a Joan Baez socialist. I say, I played a guitar and sang the labor songs. I know more left-wing songs than most of my left-wing friends. And what's irritating is that there are no good libertarian songs. So get to work, come on, guys. <laughs> so it, it, it was Marx who coined the term industrial revolution, is that correct? No. It was a, uh, the, the first use in English, it would, had been used in French before. The first prominent use in English was a follower of Marx, um, Arnold Toynbee, not his uncle or, or his nephew, mm -hmm. Uh, the Toynbee uh, the, the, uh, of universal history. And at age 31, which is when he died, he gave lectures on the Industrial Revolution in England, and they're basically the Communist Manifesto fleshed out. And that became what most people to this day think happened in the Industrial Revolution. And that is the immiseration of exactly. the working there, classes. Exactly. There was a, br a brilliant spoof of this by um, Seller and Yateman in their great book, uh, 1066 and all that, where they said around 1800, all the richest men in England all of a sudden realized that women and children could work 25 hours a day without many of them dying or becoming excessively deformed. This was known as the Industrial Revelation. <laughs> and, and basically that idea, taking, uh, taking uh, the, the novels of the times, especially uh, Charles D D Dickens, as reports on the Industrial Revolution mm -hmm. when he, he didn't know anything about it. He spent most of his life in London, which was not having an Industrial Revolution. Mm -hmm. so, so, so here's a question that I know economic historians debate, and I wonder where you come down. Was there an Industrial Revolution? In other words, was, yeah. was there, was yeah. there, was it slow or was it fast enough that we can legitimately call it as we do? A, well, it was a fast by historical standards. Here, here's the history of the world in, in uh, one diagram, let me see, uh, I'll pretend I'm, I don't know, behind, anyway, I'll start here. And, this and is here, earlier times. This is earlier times, say the invention of language yeah. <laughs> or something, and it goes along at $2 a day, $2, $2, $3, $1 a day. And then in 1800, it goes like this, factor of 30. Factor of 30, you can make a case if you include improvements in quality, that's more like a factor of 100 per capita, 100. Everyone in this room is the descendants of uh, um, unspeakably poor and ignorant uh, people, and here we are. Um, so yeah, there was an Industrial Revolution, but, but here's the key point. As a, a number of us economic historians say, um, 
um, there had been other industrial revolutions. Um, the, the, the glory of Greece and the grandeur of Rome sown China. Um, you know, it had happened a lot of times. Uh, uh, certain uh, periods in Mesopotamia. There had been industrial revolutions. And so there's, there's, but what was strange about this one is that it continued. And it continued and it continued and it continued to, to, to this day. And so there has to be something else, not just a few guys get together and invent, uh, I don't know, uh, um, water wheels. But they invent water wheels, and then they think, well, let's see, what can we do with these? Let's turn them into airplanes. And they, you know, they do all kinds of other things. Um, and that requires a deep change in how many people there are who are allowed, as the English say, to have a go. That's the key point, having a go. In a traditional agricultural society, oh, no. No goes here. You're not allowed. You're not known, not permitted. Playing devil's advocate. So most economists would say, well, we do need something else, but that something else is better institutions or a set of better institutions. Uh, that doesn't uh, work. What, here, it, and I not? devote a good deal of space in the last two volumes um, to this new institutionalism that my old friend Doug North um, who died a few months ago, um, advocated, and lots of other people. And uh, there are lots of problems with it. Institutions, I, I, it's become World Bank orthodoxy. And <laughs> my scornful description of it is, is add institutions and stir. <laughs> you want a good legal system? You want an English-style legal system? Provide all the lawyers with wigs. That'll do it. And th the problem is that there needs to be a much deeper ethical change in the society. An ethical change about one's own behavior, to be sure, but especially about other people's behavior, about how you evaluate commercial honesty. And that's a change which it has to do with institutions, but has to do with the weather, too. It has to do with lots of things. But it's not as if you can just switch on an institution and see it work. Let's take a case that is often cited, the glorious revolution of 1688 in, in, uh, in Britain. Well, uh, uh, Doug North and his colleagues said, aha! Now we have good property rights in Britain after 1688. And it just ain't so. Anyone who knows anything about English legal history, and I've, I've studied it a bit, knows that um, English laws of contract and property were established in a famous phrase before the time of Edward I. Um, there were anti-monopoly acts of parliament uh, 70 years before the Glorious Revolution. So, prop and, and then comparatively, China has very good property laws in the 16th, 17th, 18th century and before. In fact, for hundreds of years, depending on the, uh, well, for hundreds of years, they had 
to security of property, and and uh, and the emperor didn't bother them, and they, and yet they didn't have the industrial revolution. So you don't you don't deny that institutions are important. You yeah, deny that they are the spark. That's the key point. As I say in the I'm asking, that's, a, that's a question. Yeah. Well, I say in the title, how liberal ideas, as I'd like to say it now, not capital or institutions, because cap you got to have capital to have a building, you got to have bricks, right? You got to put the bricks on top of each other and mortar and so forth. So you got to have capital. But it's an it's the capital is of no use unless you have the ideas for innovation beforehand. As Keynes said, I'm not a big Keynesian these days, I once was. Um, the uh, the the reward to uh, capital could be driven down to zero in a couple of generations. If you just keep making the same stuff over and over again uh, and don't have any new ideas, of course that's going to happen. You're going to run into sharply diminished returns to capital. And, and, and the same thing holds for institutions. They're intermediate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you've you got to have property rights. Um, actually, the problem with property rights is a little sharper because the problem with property rights is that what you mean by an organized society is that it has property rights. Genghis Khan succeeded as the great Mongol leader because he insisted on the Mongols obeying property rights. He said, you steal a horse or a wife and I'll kill you. And they said, oh, oh okay, we'll stop stealing horses and wives. And they became a great military power. So it's, it's commonplace to have property rights. Um, but in any case, the, these, these other so-called causes are intermediate at best. The spark, as you put it, is equality. Equality before the law and equality of social dignity. And that's new. That's new and weird. By 1776, the notion that all men, and by the way, women, dear, are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, was somewhat of a commonplace among advanced European intellectuals. This phrase was written, alas, by an owner of slaves, but let's, let's pass that by. But, but it was only about 100 years old as a, radic as a clear political program. In the, in the 17th century, the idea that people were equal was viewed as extremely radical and dangerous. And my word, we've got to suppress these levelers and, and, and primitive communists and Quakers, and we've got to stop all this stuff. I, I love the focus on ideas. So I have a couple of questions for you. Right, let's start with this one. Why are economists, that's the group I know best, Yeah. why are economists so resistant? You poor man. Well, I know best. <laughs> why are economists so resistant to uh, recognizing the role of ideas? Well, because there you, was... You do agree that they are resistant. Oh, absolutely. There, um, I, uh, I won't name him because he's such an excellent scholar, but I read a paper by an economic historian, friend of mine, who was talking about the history of books in Europe, and he, 
all through the paper they put the, the, the word ideas in scare quotes. Like they're not real. Or... Yeah, there, there, was, so there was some influence people claim from ideas. Uh, <laughs> but okay, um, the, the, I don't know if this is a reason. Yeah, I guess it is a reason. Um, from about 1890 to about 1980, which is a nice uh, way of keeping it in mind, most thinkers, intellectuals, were materialists. And even people, conservative people, uh, were materialists, and certainly Marxists were. And they, and it's just the, it's just the cynicism of modern intellectual life, um, Marx and Freud being early examples of it, um, to, to, to the, uh, the, hermene the hermeneutics of suspicion, as they say, uh, to say, oh yeah, you claim you're dominated by ideas, but I know it's because you're, you have a, you have stock in the General Motors Corporation. That's why you're talking this way. My friend Wayne Booth, a great professor of English, called it, called this attribution, this argument, motivism, that you were, I see, you were motivated by your selfish interests. And of course, economists are specialists in this. Um, like journalists, they're, they're professional cynics. And, and they're motivated to think of material forces, prices and incomes, and I am an economist, I agree, um, as important, and I think they are too. But, but then, then they tend to say, and that's all we need. Mm -hmm. My colleague, uh, the, the great economist Gary, Gary, Gary Becker, was an extreme example of this, or George Stigler, another great economist colleague of mine. And the trouble with this is, it's what the English professors call a, uh, a performative contradiction. Because these are professors <laughs> and journalists saying ideas expressed by professors and journalists are pointless. Interest is all that matters. And you can see that, that there's kind of a lunacy about that. So you, you named two of the most notable University of Chicago professors. Yeah. There's a third who was also a colleague of yours. Uh, Milton Friedman. He was much less this way. Well, I was going to say, so, so what, what, what was Friedman's? Well, I, I, have, a, I have a story about ideas. that. When, young, as a young assistant professor at Chicago, this must have been around 1979, I mean, uh, 69, um, or uh, 1970, something like that. I was, I was in the uh, coffee room of the Social Science Building, and Milton Friedman and George Stigler, who, by, by the way, often played tennis, and Milton was very short, and George was very tall. It was one of the great uh, com comic scenes of academic life to see them playing tennis on the on the on the, uh, on the quad club tennis did, court. Did one have an advantage over the other? No, no, because because uh, Milton would run very fast, and George would loop very, and it was very funny to watch. Um, but but he, but what? Here's what their conversation was. I, you know, these great economists, and I, I admire them both very much. And uh, George said, "Oh, Milton, you're such a preacher. Um, you're always telling people that we should, we should go for free trade." 
and uh, I, I believe that people are against free trade because it's in their interest to be against free trade, and there's no point in talking to them. And uh, Friedman said, well, but George, I'm, I, that's, that's, he said, that's the difference between us. Um, I'm a teacher, and I believe that people advocate their protection and, and, and so forth because they're misled. <laughs> and if I can just get them to understand this stuff, they'll be better. And George was just disdainful of this. So you're, oh, you're crazy. You're just a preacher. Let me ask you, if I may, just to comment on another uh, great hero of mine, also an economist who put a lot of emphasis on ideas. This economist plays some role in, in, your, in your books. If I have one criticism, is that this economist should have played an even larger role. That's Julian Simon. Uh, yeah. So what, what uh, uh, Julian Simon, as you know, his, his, his main idea yeah. was that the ultimate resource is human creativity yeah, he's right. and, and human effort. The same creativity and effort that I you believe is unleashed agree. by bourgeois dignity. That's right. And so your, your view well, is I, I think Julian died young, which mm -hmm. is a, a, a terrible mistake. Just shy of the 66 yeah, you, you mustn't die young if you're going to have uh, sustained intellectual um, uh, effect unless you're Kurt Gödel or something. Um, and I completely agree with him that this talk of resources is, re in fact, I learned it from him, essentially. The talk of resources is kind of silly, uh, that they're not resources. Look, um, rare earths weren't rare until we discovered they could be used for computer batteries. Then they became rare. <laughs> uh, um, uh, um, bauxite was useless dirt until we discovered it could be made in, with a lot of electricity into aluminum. So he's, he's absolutely correct about that. And, and uh, uh, a few other economists, not too many, uh, Israel Kirzner is another example. Um, Israel points out that the, in the industrial, well, let's call it my name because I'm, that's how it should be, because it's so amazing. The, the great enrichment, he said, was a free lunch and more or less had to be. Because if all it was was a marginal investment, let's see, let's, let's put a little more money into, into ships to uh, run the slave trade and that'll make us rich, that wouldn't have made them rich as it did. I mean, we, we got a production possibility curve just leaping up. Uh, he's that way and uh, um, there are a few other economists who keep tending to what Pete calls the, the Schumpeterian insight, and uh, namely Schumpeter himself and a few others. But mostly economists learned how to say marginal benefit equals marginal cost, and uh, then they can't remember to say anything else. And uh, I'm in favor of efficiency. I've always advocated for it. Uh, but 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 it's not what modern economic growth was. It's not imperfect property rights that then you fix and then you get economic growth. That's not what did it. It's, as you said, and as, uh, as, uh, as Julian says, it's this explosion of human creativity. I, I like pointing out to my classes, you know, you, you alluded to the production possibilities curve, and of course that's yeah. how we depict economic growth. Is, yeah. Uh, 
expansion out of that yeah, curve. Yeah. And one of the standard ways that economists say, well, uh, that the industrial, excuse me, that the uh, production possibilities curve can, sh can shift out as if uh, we discover more natural resources. Oh, yeah. And of course, the, in reality, more or less, they're created. They're not. Yeah. They're not discovered. I well, but the, that's the 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 Austrian way of talking about it. Of that word is correct. Discovery. Yeah. Not discovery a year. Well, in not. Well, in, 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 in this in sense, sense I, yeah. I, I, I imagine uh, that the uh, the native inhabitants of Pennsylvania in the year 1000 had no were, idea. were probably uh, upset at this bubbly stuff in their irritating, creeks. Irritating, irritating. Yeah, it wasn't a resource. Spoil the water. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so back to the book, uh, 1848 plays a prominent role. Yeah, it does. Uh, and So what happens in 1848? Well, what happens in 1848 around Europe are revolutions, bourgeois revolutions on the whole, that then become often radicalized in, in months. I mean, it's, this isn't something that takes years, it immediately happens. Um, the great German migration to the United States in the 18, 1850s is, to a surprising extent, a direct result of the failures of uh, revolutions in the in the German lands, and they and they more or less all fail. Um, in fact, the only large country that doesn't have one in Europe is uh, is Britain, uh, but it has something close to it. I mean, it has a really scary period of the of the Irish famine and and uh, agitation and so forth. And what ha what it 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 becomes an important symbolic date. Because it's when socialism was truly invented, when this terrible idea um, of using compulsion, violence, to organize the society in, 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 instead of uh, agreement and persuasion becomes popular. And alas, it becomes popular among the formerly liberal intellectuals. The perfect example of this, and I, I love him in many ways, is John Stuart Mill, who is both the most eloquent and clear-minded clear um, exponent of liberalism, understood as I'm talking about it, and then also one of the first of the major intellectuals to turn towards socialism. So he's, he's a very interesting uh, uh, figure. In the, uh, and what's remarkable um, is that by the 1880s, essentially, all the intellectuals of Europe have turned against capitalism. Why? Uh, I don't know. If I knew, I'd write a fourth book. <laughs> uh, I, I have some gestures in this book. This is partly such a thick book because I was going to write six books. I was going to call it a sexology and sell a lot of books. And then I thought, now wait a second, that doesn't satisfy bourgeois virtue. So I crammed everything into the last one. And some of my speculation, and, and indeed just observation about this, the, this amazingly quick change in the middle of the 19th century, um, maybe it's a, it's a fathers and sons thing, because almost without exception, the artists, journalists, intellectuals who turn against capitalism 
are the children, the sons, especially it's the sons who do this, of merchants, <laughs> lawyers, uh, yeah. owners. I mean, the most famous example is Engels, yeah. who actually continued to own a cotton textile factory while railing against the very idea of cotton textile factories. Uh, so Hayek has a famous essay uh, called Intellectuals and Socialists, and they yeah. wrote in 1949. He does. And Hayek's thesis there, to, to summarize it, is that the intellect, intellectuals are the, 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 the go-betweens between the, you know, the, yeah. the researchers and the, and the deep scholars right. and, the, and the general public. Right. And Hayek believed that ideas matter. I do. Right? Yeah, right there. I agree I think with him there. We're, we're agreed. Uh, and so when, when intellectuals start changing their ideas, yeah. their changed ideas filter down in Hayek's thesis, to the general public. Right, they do. Um, if the intellectuals began to change their ideas 160 years ago, uh -huh. then are we doomed? I mean, surely then, Well, why is the great enrichment still occurring? Well, to return that, to something we talked about well, earlier. There's two halves to that question. You and I and most of the people in this room are fighting the good fight, trying to change the way intellectuals look at but we're a economy. small group we're a small group but look we're 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 smart and we're hardworking and we're gonna do it damn it um, <laughs> I told you I was an optimist as to why it continues why the great enrichment continues again there's this demonstration effect and there's this basic uncontrollability mm -hmm. I was thinking as I was driving here and living through uh, from uh, from the airport from Dulles Airport um, I was looking at the, at the richness of Northern Virginia and thinking to myself, this can't be stopped. One of the, you know, um, what's her name? Uh, uh, the junior senator from Massachusetts. Um, Elizabeth Warren. Yeah, it, she's, she's, I'm sure she's a nice person. And by the way, she's an Indian. Um, Cherokee. Uh, yeah, Cherokee. But she, she's, um, her people who think the law is the way to go and adding more and more and more regulations, they, it's very hard to control an economy like the United States, even with this gigantic size of, of, of government that Bob Higgs has so eloquently discussed. Um, Look, I'm, I'm going to make a confession. I've had a lot of work done in my apartment in Chicago. I have a loft apartment in Chicago. It's done by non-union workers, and I haven't ever gotten a building permit. Now, I hope admitting this on national TV doesn't get me into trouble. It probably will. I mean, that's the way life is. But I've never gotten a building permit. And if you thought that laws were effective, as Warren does, and that they're obeyed just all the time, then that would be just a shocking fact. But I'll bet you half the construction in Chicago of the small-scale construction, the home remodeling, doesn't have building permits. So, you know, and doesn't, we don't obey union uh, monopolies. Too bad. So might it, might it be that we intellectuals, I, mean, I, I don't want to go the full 
direction of Stigler's view, but might it be that we intellectuals are not as influential as we sometimes think? I mean, if, if, because if, it, well, if, if intellectuals have, right. been, have been railing against capitalism for 160 yeah, years. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. And so uh, uh, the, exactly the ideas right. that keep it going must be at a more granular, that's right. that's lower right. and, level. And, and I think what's happened is that the, the breadth or the depth, I don't know quite how to describe it, of thinking people, people with serious political opinions. I don't mean James, James Buchanan and the upper levels of this. I mean just people is much bigger than it once was. And that there are many, many, many people who believe in trade-tested betterment and think, boy, gee, it's great we have suburbs with these nice houses. And oh, boy, what a wonderful country. I love America. And the, even though at the heights of the um, intelligentsia, whether in the National Review or the nation, they're, they're railing against um, uh, each other and, um, and the society in which they live. So I have this sense that there's this momentum to <coughs> capitalism which is very hard to stop. Now, I don't think it's impossible to stop because we've, you know, how do I know it's like infant ba baptism? Do you believe in infant baptism? Believe in it, I've seen it. Uh, uh, do, you, do, you, do, you, do you believe that economic growth can be stopped by absurd excessive regulation and overtaxation and, and uh, wars and, and, and stupid policies? Of, yeah, hey, I believe it. I've seen it. Well, to, to tie it, you, you mentioned Bob Higgs's work. And yeah. Bob documents, to my satisfaction, that things pretty much came to a stop in the United, economically, yeah. in the U.S. in the 1930s because of what Bob calls regime uncertainty. Certainly, was he a, was a, a, I, I dreary pullback. Yeah, in I, I, investment. I completely agree <laughs> with Bob's argument, which doesn't make me popular with a lot of my left-wing friends, but. Um, the other thing that happened in the 30s was something that Alexander Field, the economic historian, has shown, which is even though the government was screwing it up in the background, innovation was continuing. So then when they kind of got out of this uh, threatening to move, as so many countries were, to socialism or fascism in the 30s, um, they, uh, when we got over that, kind of, um, we had a... Gr we had a great boom. Now that you're done with this, see, this the first was published in 2006. Yeah. Second volume, 2010. Yeah. Third volume this year. Praise the Lord. Laos Dale. What are you working on now? What's well, that? I'm working on a popular version of the whole thing that I'm doing with Art Carden. And Art and I are going to. Um, make a kind of kind of a well we're kind of thinking of airport type book mm -hmm. because these you know all those these are wonderful books I mean <laughs> <laughs> they're they're not exactly summer reading I I have to admit you know you could try it but I think you'd oh it'll take me the whole summer to read it <laughs> <laughs> put it by your I have short chapters I learned that a long time ago short chapters are the way to go so you can put it by your bed, and like the Bible, you can read a chapter and fall asleep. Um, so we're going to do that. 
And then I've got a um, uh, longer-term project that you and I are involved in, which is to revise um, a, a microeconomics book of mine. It was published a long time ago because I really want to get economists understanding simple, what we call price theory. Um, I've got a style book called Economical Writing, which the University of Chicago is going to bring out as a, uh, as a third edition. It's a little short thing. And then kind of after that, I'm thinking of a book called God in Mammon, Economic Sermons. Now, I'm an, as you said at the beginning, I'm an, I'm an Episcopalian. I, I know it's shameful, but there you are. Um, and I want my progressive Episcopalian friends to, 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 to realize that, that capitalism is not necessarily corrupting of the soul. So these will be actual sermons, a short book, um, which uh, will show that uh, Jesus wasn't a socialist. We're now going to turn it uh, to you, the audience, for questions to, directed at Deirdre. I'll uh, uh, run the queue here, but if anyone has any uh, questions for Deirdre about our discussion or about anything that you've read or heard Deirdre say and more generally, now's your opportunity. Yeah, Mark. Well, why, why don't you stand up when you do it so, so, the, so, so the microphone can hear you? Sure. Uh, so I want to know, um, recently with Donald Trump's election, there's been a lot of discussion about Putnam and Murray's hypothesis about the increasing class divide in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, between the uh, upper middle class educated elite and sort of the general population. And I was wondering, given your focus on ideas, it seems that there are some similarities between uh, how they approach the problem it, that certain uh, values are transmitted in the upper class and the lower class does not have those values and is partially a reason for their economic, maybe not decline, but their not economic, their lack of economic success as the same level as the upper well, class. Well, that particular argument is, is older than, uh, than, than Putnam or Murray. Uh, Bob Fogle, my friend and colleague, wrote a book about 15 years ago called The Fourth Great Enlightenment, which, which made exactly that argument. He said that, what the, that, that the problem in the United States, as he was focusing on it, is not poverty of a material character. That's not what the problem is. The, the problem is, well, spiritual poverty, so to speak. Bob was rather explicit about it. Um, uh, it, it might be good to know that Bob was a paid organizer for the Communist Party and was married to a black woman for, um, for all his life, his adult life, uh, way before it was at all fashionable to be a biracial couple. Um, so, so it's an older argument. It's plausible to me that that you can have c c cultural values that cripple you. Without them, you know, the people say, oh, it's bl bl blaming the victim. 
it's not blaming the victim, it's just hoping the victim will see. Look, I, I was for a while at the University of California at the Riverside, there on a, on a fellowship for a term. And I kept being told by ad administrators there that the large Hispanic population in Southern California, often working class, often didn't think of college and would be tempted by their uncle's offer to join their lawn mowing firm instead of going to college. And they said this was a constant problem. These bright Hispanic kids wouldn't apply to college. So, you know, I, I worry about that. On the other hand, <laughs> I worry more about the uh, rather obvious uh, impositions on poor people in the United States that, that come from the government. I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. And, and like the war on drugs, we, we would have much more prosperous and um, uh, Hispanic and uh, um, African-American uh, neighborhoods if we didn't have a war, had never had a war on drugs. Question. Thank you for, for talking. Thank you for talking to us about your, your book. Um, at some point during, during the conversation, um, you used the recent uh, examples of India and China yes. um, to support your thesis. But I was wondering, um, if indeed what matters is these ideas at the granular, granular level, yeah. how is it that a, that a change happens at such, within such short periods of time that you know, one change in policy brings about? Well, it's, you know, in the, the, it's the Indian case that I know the best um, because I had a student who worked on a, a dissertation about it. Um, uh, his name is Adya. And he showed that it did come from the bottom. Or actually, I don't think it was the bottom. Look, here's the central planners and the top intellectuals and the government officials up here. Here are the people. And what I think matters most is not what comes from the people by itself or the government, but what goes on in between. The conversation of the society, the talk of the society, the ethical discussion. But he noticed that in Bollywood movies, in the after independence in the, f in the 50s and 60s, the heroes were government bureaucrats and the enemies were people in business and then it started to change. Maybe there's simply a material cause of this. They finally realized that these government officials, you know, weren't, weren't their friends. And it, sw it switched around until by the, by the 70s, late 70s and 80s, Indian popular culture was sneering at the police and the planners and the regulators, not at the 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 the, the people in enterprise. So I, that's one example. But but I think you're right. It, here's a point that I make in the book very frequently: ideas can change very quickly. We talk, some people say, oh, I see what you're saying, Deirdre. You're saying that culture matters. No, I'm not quite saying that. I'm saying that rhetoric matters, that how people talk matters, and that can change quickly. 
very fast in a society. It doesn't always, but it can. What you call the habits of the lip. The habits of the lip. Aris? Um, I'd like you to um, <clears throat> ponder on the relationship between interest and ideas. Yeah. Uh, we try to understand how uh, ideas can change in a hostile environment. I'm wondering how this is possible if the incentive structure and the power structure is hostile to those ideas. Well, I'm mentioning, I'll be mentioning Africa, for instance, which is a case you are very optimistic about. Yeah, how can we bring about the change of ideas and bring uh, the ideas of bourgeoisie? equality in such a hostile institutional and power structure? Yeah. Well, that's the big historical question, <laughs> or the big historical fact, more to the point, that, that, that for millennia in agricultural societies, the power structure was hostile to new ideas about the economy. I mean, it's very noticeable that economics is, like geology, is invented in the 18th century by Scots people. And you can say the French were involved and so forth, but it was mainly uh, a Scottish invention. And why, why did that happen? <laughs> why did this system of liberalism that we call economics, at least until 1848, develop rather suddenly in a, a little corner of northwestern um, um, Europe? And so the, the ideas can change, but you're right. If the, if the powers that be work on it, they can stop them, um, as they successfully did for se 70 years in the so Soviet um, Union. Why they change is crucial, be because if, if, well, for the ideas to have an effect, they have to be new ideas. And where you get new ideas depends. Sometimes it's internal to the logic of the idea. I'd say the idea of equality, as I've defined it, is a shockingly novel idea that has a tendency to get bigger and bigger and bigger, to apply to more and more people. Women in the United States and Britain are big forces in the anti-slavery movement the emancip the, uh, in the early 19th century. And then they say to themselves and to other people, men, they're called, uh, um, uh, say, how about us? And out of that came the women's movement. And then, and then, and then gay people in the 60s, that great, wonderful time, and honestly it was, started to say, wait a minute. And the drag queens fought the cops at, um, in, in New York. So, so the ideas tend, I, I think there's internal logic to ideas that makes them expand, sometimes. Sometimes there's internal logic that makes them collapse, I don't know. But, but the, it's not just sociological forces, although in the case of, uh, of Europe in the 16th and 17th century, it's, it's these accidents I talk about. Before I call on Pete, I'll, I'll point out that we're, we're taping this one day after uh, the U.S. Treasury announced that Harriet Tubman will appear yes, I'm, on the... Yes, uh, I'm delighted by that. 20, which is it's an inspired choice. I'm simply appalled that Jackson was on it for so long. And I said, oh, we're going to change the $10 bill. For God's sake, stop it. Go after Jackson. <laughs> this racist... I mean, it's not just blacks that he owned, 
but he, his, his very sweet treatment of Native Americans yeah. is something to remember. Pete. Yeah, I, I have two questions. Uh, the first one is a, is a, is a broad one. I, I've been listening on tape, because probably because I don't have the patience to read it, uh, the uh, Ambrose book on the Lewis and Clark expedition. Uh -huh. Uh, so, undaunted courage. So that's 1803, and yep. one of the things that just struck me. So I'm, I'm, it's in. I'm kind of in the beginning of the book. They're in St. Louis. They're camping down for the winter. Yeah. And they're having a conversation. And then in the diaries, they discuss discuss meeting someone. I can't remember the name right now. But they said he's more Adam Smith than Adam Smith's book. No, really. <laughs> and making fun of him. Oh, yeah. And yeah. that's by 1803, so it's only like in a short period of time. So there's something about ideas and then the, the clarity that was already kind of sneering, at sneering in yeah, a way right. that, you know, and so it's kind of, uh, this reminds me, Max, by the way, of a, of a Bob Higgs. When I was a graduate student, I went and saw a lecture by Bob Higgs, yeah. and he told a story about Jonathan Hughes. Yeah. He's a great teacher, and, and yeah. you said that Jonathan Hughes said, Bob, if you think that, you know, the government's growing, you should have seen what the colonials. Those guys wanted to interfere all the time in everyone. There's nothing new about trying to interfere and sneer yeah, yeah. about capitalism. Yeah, that's true. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about when can ideas sustain sneering and when can the sneering become so great that ideas can't survive? And, uh, and, uh, well, wait, 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 okay. let me just ask the answer that. Okay. Uh, because uh, by saying, I don't know. <laughs> um, but we've got to take ideas seriously, that's all. It's, it would be very strange to give a history of the United States that didn't take seriously all men are created equal, the, the, the Gettysburg Address, uh, um, uh, I Have a Dream. I mean, come on, words matter and ideas matter. But how... Uh, one part of the intellectual world that deals with this, again I say, is the humanities. And um, my colleagues and friends in English and history and, and so forth are students of these matters and they can tell you how the idea of uh, equality for African Americans developed and to some degree tell why it developed or was obstructed. So I, I, I'm fascinated by this issue of sneering because you think about post-communist Russia, <laughs> yeah. you know, and uh, the sort of, um, sort of popular characterizations that people have about things. Do people have to, in fact, become non-sneerers in order to be able to have the bourgeois society? And it, going back to your point, I mean, it's this, Don raised this, I think, one way to interpret your ideas is that there's ideas, there's institutions, and there's practices. Mm -hmm. And that without the spark of the ideas, the institutions and practices don't actually go in the right way. So That's you're right. not saying that capital accumulation doesn't matter at all. No, you're no, not, not at all. It's just not the it's, spark. It's an, it's an yeah. intermediate thing that, that if you don't have the idea of a brick building, <laughs> you're then not going to be able to build a brick building. And, and th th but it would be crazy to say that it's the bricks that caused the building, the building to be built. It's the idea that caused it. So I want to just ask you this question. This is what I was getting. So you got in a car, 
You got picked up at Dulles. You see all this wealth. One of the things that's happened over the last 25 years is that Washington, D.C. has become the hub of a lot of the richest counties in yeah. America. Yeah. And it wasn't because of creation of any kind of wealth creation. You're And so on the one hand, you have an expansion, like you said, that there's this you know, renewed idea that we can't stop this, this wealth creation or whatever, yeah. wealth consumption or whatever. But there's a line in Adam Smith that I wanted to ask you about. So in The Wealth of Nations, Smith says, the natural effort of every individual to better his own condition is so powerful that it is alone and without any assistance, not only capable of carrying on the society to wealth and prosperity, but of surmounting a hundred impertinent obstructions <laughs> which the folly of human laws too often encumbers its operations. And so I'm wondering when we look around, we have two things going on, which is on the one hand, yeah. We have this rent-seeking state, which is these folly of human laws. But on the other hand, we have all these uh, uh, you know, ways to get around the obstructions. Right. And I'm wondering if there's how the role that ideas play in us being able to tilt that balance in one way or the other. Well, a, let's take, an, take a lo lo local example. The, uh, the public choice approach to thinking about the role of the government, so-called public choice, also the Virginia School, you can call it lots of things. And if we can get across the idea that, that the government is not composed of Swedish philosopher kings, <laughs> we'll have accomplished a great deal. I have cousins who work for the CIA and so I, you know, I'm, and they're very nice people, but every time I come to Washington, I'm appalled that all these intelligent people, like my cousin, are working for the great beast. Um, he, here's here's a fact that I, I I I calculate in the book, the third book. Take out of the 170 ranked countries for honesty of public administration. You know, they have these rankings all the time. And, the t there are about 170 countries involved. Let's take the top 30, Spain is at the margin, and call those honest countries. And for those countries, Sweden, Minnesota, New Zealand, you might think it's not completely insane to give the government more money and power. Now, actually, I don't think so, but Let's be generous to our social de democratic friends. So, so um, uh, as someone famously said, giving more money to the government is like giving whiskey, giving whiskey to a teenage boy. But let's, let's pretend that, that, that if you're these wonderfully honest Swedish bureaucrats, that'll be okay. Then ask what percentage of the world's population is governed by these top 30, and it's not a very great sta high standard, the top 30, and it's 14 <laughs> percent. So 86 percent of the world is governed by governments that everyone agrees are hopelessly corrupt, and you wouldn't want to give any more money to them. The the Italian government, for example. Every Italian knows this. Italy is ranked 75th 
in this ranking. That's, it's equal to Vietnam and the Kurzak Republic. That's my beloved Italy. I mean, I love Italy. But anyone, I, I have Italian friends who are kind of hopeless social democrats, and I don't get it. They know that giving more money to this government is a terrible, terrible idea. And yet, it goes on. We have time for one more quick question. There was someone back here who, yeah. Uh, well, I, I, hey. <laughs> um, I think as a GMU alumni, one of the most shocking things about especially your second book was uh, downgrading the status of trade um, yeah. and talking about it's just, it's just moving stuff around. Yeah, that is. doesn't really help. Um, and I'm, I'm sort of, I, I don't know if this is the right venue, I guess, but I'm very curious about this idea of it really is the local, the nature of local production that matters. Um, you know, sort of the story that I get out of standard economics or a standard libertarian fair would be free trade had something to do with the Industrial Revolution. The reason for the Irish potato famine was the British restricted trade that the Irish were allowed to do. Yeah, but in yeah. your book, you specifically say it was straightforward Malthusian uh, carrying capacity. Um, so I don't know if. Well, you know, trade is an extremely important context. And free trade, but, but you know, the, I, 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 I ought to have labeled this concern that I have in the second book. I should have called it the Harburger problem after my old colleague um, Al Harburger, who pointed this out over and over again. The efficiency effects of trade are, are fine and admirable. I, I just bought, last year I bought an accordion. Um, a, a, a lady is someone who knows how to play an accordion but doesn't. Uh, <laughs> um, and I couldn't have built the accordion myself. And it came from Czechoslovakia, and I'm delighted to have it. It's a wonderful little instrument. So, so trade is good, and it makes us much better off. And if you cut off trade entirely, we'd all be going back to $1 a day or worse. But the really big effect of trade, I think, is, is, is we say in this kind of weasel word, is dynamic. It's more about innovation. It's more about forcing Indians to stop not innovating about breakfast cereal by preventing Kellogg from importing into India, as they did for, for many, many years. Um, uh, the, um, uh, American automobiles were not very good until we dropped um, quotas and tariffs on automobiles. And suddenly, GM had to compete with um, um, Toyota and Volvo. So, you know, I'm not against trade. I'm just saying that, that the conventional static belief that, oh yeah, you just, or, or the idea that a lot of people have that, that trade is somehow income itself. This is a point I've been making since I was very young, that uh, tr trade is good, but it's not the same thing as income. It's not, it's not identical. It's what, what you need is new ideas, um, new configurations, and having more cotton textiles exported from Great Britain is not what made the British rich. What made, the, what made them rich 
is widespread ingenuity. I'm, as I said, I'm just reading a book, a biography of Fridjof Nansen. It's very noticeable that in his uh, uh, travels around the Arctic um, in, in Russia, the people who he has to rely on are German and English and Scottish by origin because the Russians are unreliable. They won't keep their commercial promises. So you can't buy dogs from them, sled dogs. Uh, uh, so trade is important, but the, the underlying ethic of saying things like, oh, you made a fortune inventing a new steam engine. That's wonderful. You go to it. Let's have some more of that. That's really what made the modern world. Well, thank you, Deirdre. It's been fun. Thank you. And enlightening. I and hope so. uh, I uh, encourage, I'm sure you won't disagree with this idea, I encourage everyone to buy several copies and read and study them. This is a remarkably important and insightful uh, piece of scholarship. Thank you, dear. Thanks.